Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is my co-host Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight's episode is episode eighty-five, and we are covering the top five best movies that haven't aged well. <clears throat> so, the idea here is that these are movies that haven't aged well, and these are what Frank considers the best out of those movies. Um, why do you want to do this list, Frank? If I remember, I think it was because I watched the number one movie on this list. And even though I still enjoyed it and thought it was a good movie, I kept thinking, man, this is really, really awkward and, like, inappropriate for 2020. Um, it also was kind of inspired a little bit by our um, buddy cop movie list mm-hmm. in watching uh, Freebie and the Bean. Right. Um, another movie that, while I enjoy it, is really anachronistic and um, just sort of outdated. And it's, uh, I don't know, its views and the way that it portrays like certain characters and their attitudes towards people. If you look at stuff like 48 Hours, too, is another one that... Um, yeah, this has been something we've kind of hit on in a number of different episodes yeah. throughout, the, um, throughout the past year and a half or so. And with Freebie and the Bean, that's... I, I guess the idea there is there are times when a character could have views that aren't um you know like socially kind of acceptable anymore or anything like that but like as long as it's part of the plot and there's a reason for it i guess that's a little bit better than something like freebie and the bean where that's just the norm and like it's not portrayed necessarily in a negative way like his uh, racism against like hispanic and stuff like that like there's a couple of movies from the past 20 ish years um, in American History X and uh, sure. uh, Monster Ball, where you have main characters that are um, antagonists, really, like at the beginning, in terms of their views towards, you know, specifically like race in those two instances, but they grow and change and kind of develop different attitudes and um, throughout the course of the movie, so they they grow into the protagonist role. Um, in a lot of movies, especially from, you know, the 60s and 70s, you have characters that are protagonists throughout the movie that do things and think things and their characters say things that would not be acceptable anymore. Or the movie portrays um, certain characters of different ethnic backgrounds or um, gender roles or whatever in a way that's really um, archaic and not necessarily, uh, like, acceptable, I don't think. Yeah, I or guess at least it's like somewhat problematic because one sure. of the movies I think it's kind of hard to argue. It's just I kind of really wanted to talk about it, but um, <laughs> I guess with, sex, like with sexism, I guess we see that probably like you know in a lot of what romantic comedies and stuff like that, where the guy starts off a certain way and ends up growing. If we go outside of romantic, com- well, I guess that's still a romantic comedy, but as good as it gets is the first thing that came to mind when I thought about like you know men having you know, negative views towards women and softening, like, over the course of the movie, kind of just like you were talking about, like, American History X, or... Right. And we'll, um, the number one movie, I think, is maybe the best example of, a uh, of that, or not, not the number one, the first movie we're going to talk about is maybe the best example of that. Um, and there's just, like, it's, it's funny because, like, all five of these movies, I think, still are, like, effective movies, and I think that I would argue that all five are pretty important. Um, 
I guess they're all American films, right? So they're all pretty yeah. important. Well, the fourth one, I guess, is probably you would consider British. Um, but I think the production's America, though. I mean, I I'm not sure. I mean, it's I set in America, so right, I mean, sure. Still, were enjoyable. Like I still liked them all. Um, it's just yeah. that thing where you feel like just sort of like uncomfortable watching it, and like I don't know. I think right. that we, it's. And it's interesting because I don't think I felt that way when I saw these movies at all the first time I saw them. And all five of these movies are ones that I saw when I was relatively young. Um, right. Some when I was a, a child. Mm -hmm. um, at least two of them when I was a child. And then the other three, like, as a teenager. So. Yeah. No, I agree. I saw yeah, one of them before the age of 10. The rest were either my early to late teens. It's the first time, or no, the one number four I've never seen until now, but um, that's the only one I hadn't seen. But um, yeah, no, I certainly didn't think about those, but I mean, I think it's like, yeah, I don't know, we can probably talk about them individually. The other thing that the caveat I want to talk about is that like these are specifically movies, and it, I, because I, I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, you know, a few weeks ago, like, oh how the hell is Woody Allen not on here or something like that? But then I was like, okay, no, that's not, that's not his movies necessarily. It's like, that's more him as a person and you know, how that has influenced like the view of some of his movies and stuff like that. So yeah, the, the interesting, <clears throat> interesting thing about people like Woody Allen in particular, in terms of lists like this is, I think his movies are also like personal. You know, like, he's mm. the main character in almost all, especially his, like, earlier, you know, whatever, like, more critically acclaimed movies. And I don't know that he ever is really, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call him, like, progressive, but I don't think he's regressive either. Right. And I think that he... I think that he's definitely a director that's able to... um I don't know, like portray people in a more honest perspective as opposed to his characters. Maybe the only character he portrays, the only thing he portrays as a character is himself. Caricature is himself. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I mean, that's also what we could make his movies potentially problematic I, sure. uh, nowadays. I mean, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I was thinking about it like that though. It's like you know, it's it, it it's tied into his personality because of like how you just mentioned. So I mean, like that's why I was I was thinking like I was I, I know you're hesitant to talk about his movies a lot of times anyway, unless they're kind of outside the realm of right. Really, it's it's anything after Mighty Aphrodite, Bullets Over Broadway, like that era mm -hmm. is to me when it really becomes uncomfortable talking about him. Because in hindsight, we now know like what was like happening concurrently, like during that sure. time in my life. Um, and it's the way that he casts himself. Um, not that he's in Bullets Over Broadway, you know, but like it's the way that he casts himself in uh, movies like Mighty Aphrodite that just make it really, um, just really uncomfortable. So right. they they haven't aged well, not because of the content of the movie, but like, like you said, it's the, the character of the man that made the movie. Right. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I'm ready to jump right in because I think all these have very unique discussions to them. Uh, sure. uh, so 
just before we get started, I do want to let everybody know the month of October, we're going to be diving into horror movies um, like we have, you know, the past uh, couple of years. So what up first, we have the top five avant-garde horror movies. Your favorite list ever, I think. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, I got one more left to go and I've liked uh, one of them. Um, so <clears throat> it's just not my thing, but <clears throat> There's only one that I really, really dislike, but we can talk about it. So that's coming up. And then in the second week of October, we are going to be doing a first watch with um, uh, friends of the podcast, Mike Bledsoe and Orion Wellmaker. And we'll be watching, they will be watching Child's Play for the first time ever, the original Child's Play. Uh, and I think I figured out, Frank, how we can do actually just to watch along with that. Um <clears throat> as opposed to um what we usually do yeah so um and then uh we're going to wrap up the month with the first ever genre specific fresh five where frank is going to give his top five horror movies um probably cheating a little bit on that so it's probably gonna be like top like you know like a seven um over the course of like the last say five to six months that he's watched uh so we'll have some newer movies uh, on that list um more recent movies um and then we're ending um the year like here soon which is crazy but um we have a couple lists in there i know we're going to be doing the top five 40s comedies top five 80s action movies which are both pretty big categories we're going to be doing another Versus um, with the movies Annihilation and Starfish, uh, where we'll talk in depth and do a deep dive on those movies. And then we start our year-end list, where we'll be covering the years 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, we got a lot of uh, major like episodes like throughout the rest of the year. There should be a lot of good content. Yeah. So, all right, and we'll need it because we're all being driven inside um, due to unnaturally, at least here on in Maryland, unnaturally cold weather this early in the season. Um, we're going to be heading back into the 40s again here in another five days at night. You'll be all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but COVID cases are going up, so <clears throat> because everybody's being driven inside because of cold weather, so. <clears throat> um. So once you get COVID, there's going to be plenty of content to listen to. <laughs> All right. Um, number five on your list. <laughs> Which I still can't believe this is number five on your list, but okay. Um, is 1961's Breakfast of the Tiffany's, directed by Blake Edwards. It stars Audrey Hepburn and George Papard, Patricia Neal, Buddy Apson, and Mickey Rooney. It has an 88% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 91% from audiences. You want to tell us just a bit about this movie and why it is on this list? Um, so, Hepburn plays Holly Golightly, um, a New York City socialite, um, who's kind of a high-priced escort, but without the implied like intercourse of being an escort. Maybe with the implied intercourse, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. Like she's still kind of framed as not innocent, but somewhat like she just like accompanies men. Well, she there's a lot of references. I I because I was really like watching at this time, not having not seen it in twenty five years or so. Um, 
she talks about um, going to the powder room a lot, and I think yeah. the powder. I think the powder room specifically is the code for sex. That yeah, it's fifty dollars for her to yeah. go to the powder room. Right. Um, you might be right, but again, they don't come out and like specifically. No, say they that. don't. Yeah. So it's still you can maintain like a sure air of ignorance about it and just whatever paying for companionship. Um, she's part of a whole group of women are similar to her in terms of, you know, that's just what they do. Um, they entertain people who are criminals and um, rats and super rats, as she calls them. Um, becomes acquainted with a man that moves into her building, um, played by George Pappard, who's a um, aspiring writer. Uh, Paul Barjack is his name. Uh, he's a kept man as well by a wealthy socialite woman who's dissatisfied with her marriage. So they have a lot in common in the sense that they're both basically paid for their good looks um, and their charming companionship. Um, over the course of the movie, um, they develop a friendship that kind of blossoms into a reticent love, more on more reticent on her part than his because he's fully in love with her by probably like the second half of the movie, I would say. Um, she is a go-between for a imprisoned um, drug kingpin and his uh, quote-unquote lawyer, where she visits the kingpin once a week in jail and then brings back the weather report, um, which is code for things that are happening in the criminal underworld. Um, eventually, she becomes kind of disillusioned with the life that she leads and decides she's going to marry this one wealthy man when that falls apart, she then decides she's going to marry a guy that's in line to be the next president in Brazil. Um, ultimately, really, like, through argument, I guess, on Paul's part, who's persistent about wanting to marry her for you know, about, like, oh, half of the movie, um, she gives in and they end up together, and I guess happily ever after. Um, beautiful movie in terms of its technicolor. Like, it's really... Mm -hmm. Gorgeously filmed. Um, Blake Edwards is a director, um, famous for the Pink Panther movies mostly, and then also the director of the number four movie on our list. Um, Hepburn is amazing in this movie. Like Hepburn is one of my favorite actresses from the time period. Um, this Roman Holiday, um, Wait Until Dark. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I really like. Love Hepburn, and I like her. I like the way she carries herself. Um, obviously, she's beautiful, like one of the most beautiful actresses, in my opinion, of all time. Um, George Fapard is really good. Um, it's a very, I think, unvarnished look in a lot of ways, even though they kind of, like, glitter up the idea of, like, prostitution. Um, there still are some things that happen where she's, Obviously not like 100% emotionally stable. Um, he's got a lot of like self-doubt because of his inability to succeed as a writer and just his, I think, not really disgust, but like the fact that he sort of like suppresses his shame at being like a kept man. Um, should I just talk about like what I think like? Yeah, I would just do that. Yeah, in the modern era. Um, so it still is an enjoyable movie to watch, but there's a couple of things that I think are really problematic. And the main one is that, um, what's his name? Um, Mickey Rooney mm -hmm. plays um, I.Y. Yunanoshi, uh, the Japanese landlord of the building that Go Lightly and um, Varjak live in. 
Um, Mickey Rooney, if you're not familiar, is a very white man right. um, who wears prosthetic teeth and yellow paint on his body to make him look Japanese and does the whole um, turning R's into, or L's into R's and um, the way that he speaks and just everything about the character is incredibly... Keeping his upper teeth like pronounced and like out um, like a lot wearing of times. Kimonos, right. um, making tea. Yeah. Uh, he's a pornographer, probably. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of implied. Um, it's just a really, if there was a Japanese man playing this role, it would still be a really uncomfortably stereotypical view of like a Japanese immigrant in America. <clears throat> and especially at this time, because you're only 16, 17 years removed from American Japanese citizens being kept in concentration camps in the country. Um, and then to cast, you know, a white man to play that role as like a just like really over-the-top caricature of Japanese that's really problematic. Um, to his defense, Blake Edwards later in life has said that that's the one thing he really regrets about the movie Yeah, is the casting of Rooney and the fact that like they allowed him to, um, I guess, be as unfettered and extreme as he was. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I found kind of problematic about it, and really it was the, the Yuninoshi thing, was what made me think of this movie. Because I really like Breakfast Tiffany's um, for the most part. I think that even though Golightly is almost like a proto-feminist like icon in a lot of ways, in the sense that she's an independent woman who's not really tied down by the need to be in a relationship, she still defines herself in the end by wanting to get married to someone that can take care of her financially. Um, And really, like, Papard, you know, Barjack, who's the the hero of the the movie, still views her as his property because he loves her. Like, she belongs to him, and she can't... He can't think about her being with anybody else. And, like, I understand that from, like, a romantic standpoint, but it's just the language that's used. Mm-hmm. It's something that I don't think that if you made this movie today, I think you would change a lot of that language and the way that he talks to her because it makes him come off more as like a, not brute, but like chauvinistic male and definitely the Asian portrayal by um by Rooney. Yeah. Like you, like you either would like cast that as a completely different character altogether or if it was an Asian man, it would just be, he would just be Asian. Japanese or whatever. It wouldn't necessarily be like this ridiculous character. And they play it for laughs, but none of it's really even that funny either. Like, it doesn't really work as, like... Yeah, I mean, I think people in 1961 probably, there's plenty of people who thought it was funny. But, um, certainly oh. now, like, you know, I, you know, it's it's just... Even if I can try to ignore it, it's not funny. Um... <clears throat> right, and they don't let you ignore it because the scenes right. that he's in are so pronounced... And so much about him, like, it reminds me of the, um, and this is, like, absolute parody, but, like, you think of, like, the John Belushi um, samurai skit things Mm -hmm. or whatever that are just, like, complete, like, 100% ridiculous parody. But And I know that this is parody, and I know that that's, you know, Blake Edwards, like, had no problem casting people of different races. Um, especially white people to play like uh, other races, but 
don't know. It's just awkward to see. And he's in it enough where it's something you can't really ignore. Like, if he was a more minor character, it would be fine. But he's in, what would you say, like 20% of the movie, probably? Like, he's at least in, like, eight or nine scenes total. Yeah, total. Probably eight or nine scenes. I don't know. Yeah. I, I They're pretty short scenes, though. I'd say, like, 10 to 12 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Um, but I, to the point about her, like, I get what you're saying. I mean, like, you were saying, like, if it was made today, I mean, of course, if it was made today, it would be entirely different. But I think for the time period, the idea of moving beyond wealth and marrying for love was a, you know, or social status versus love or whatever is still an important thing in 1961. So it is a a progression. And I understand what you're saying about the language. I felt the same way, but it's like, I think that just to that point, I do think at the time it was a progression um, moving away from social and financial status for a marriage and going with just whatever. I don't like talking about these subjects because I'm an emotionless um, robot, but I mean like the, the idea of like, you know, following your heart or whatever, you know, I mean, but really um, not a Hollywood movie. Like that's the whole thing about like the, whatever golden era of like Hollywood is that it's all about romance for the most part. Like it's all about people marrying the people they love. You know, I mean, right. look yeah. about the Lady Eve before. Sure. Um, the Preston Sturgis movie. Um, he loves her and marries her. I mean, I'm assuming that Capote is basing, like, you know, this woman off of probably a composite of a, plenty of women that he knew in, like, that circle. So, um, I'm, I'm again, it's like, you know, yeah, like, maybe it was always that way, but I mean, like, I, if it's a to a specific setting or a specific, you know, time period and place. I don't know. I still think it could be seen as progressive. I mean, Christ, we have places in the world right now where still like, you know, marriage is based on social standing and, you know, money. I mean, so. Um, I'm saying like why I think that today when you watch. Yeah, it, sure. Yeah. Like archaic. I get that. Yeah. But especially um, it's the Unanoshi thing more than anything else. Like yeah. he's, that's completely unacceptable. Oh, absolutely. It's fucking disgusting. <laughs> sure. Right. I like, yeah, I mean, yes. Um, but no, I, 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 yeah, I thought this movie still held up. I was surprised that you had it as number five. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you that because you think I, I really enjoy this movie. Don't, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. Like yeah. the thing I struggled with on this list is, what does the order like signify? You know, and like we kind of talked about this yeah. a little offline and there's no right. reason to do it. I mean, honestly, well, this, this is always going to be subjective—a subjective list. If you're yeah. ranking them in terms of le- your like, you know, your least favorite to favorite, kind of like starting with number five being like kind of like out of the five least favorite. <clears throat> um. I don't think it's a big deal because that's your subjective opinion. I'm just, I was always, I was just surprised because like I, you've always talked about this movie a lot in terms of loving Hepburn so much. Yeah. Um, and you're enough of a Capote fan um, overall, I think. Um, I don't really like some of the changes though, between the Capote, sure. the novel and what they did in the book. So that's, yeah. When I, when I, I don't know if this is the first Hepburn movie I saw or not. might've been Geely maybe. Um, when I read Capote's novel, I was much older than I was. Right. 
probably by at least like 10 or 10 or 11 years, maybe more than that. Um, so that's always something. I mean, I've kind of softened on this as I get older, but like I used to be so completely like militant almost about movies making changes to the way that something's portrayed in a, a work of like literary fiction. Um, so it still kind of bothers me a little bit just because I think they soften her a little too much sure. um, for for Hollywood just to make it like like palatable. Um, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I still like this movie, but I yeah, I was just surprised because I've always heard you talk about it, and then I was saying earlier today, it's like you know, if, as objective as you can get, it's like this would out of the five movies you have on here would be considered by a lot to be objectively the best film, you know, out of all of it. And I'm using film purposely, I think, like, you know, mm -hmm. because there's, you know, there's an idea of, like, almost filming movies. And <clears throat> so I was just a little surprised. I thought you, I thought, I really thought the list was, like, in a reverse order um, when you sent it to me. My mind wouldn't also, register the idea that it was number five for some reason. It's also a combination of enjoyment plus importance, I think. Sure. Now, this isn't, with, yeah like discuss that like certain aspects of it <laughs> sure yeah this isn't like an that's the interesting thing is like so many people like this movie but in the end of the day it's extremely well filmed hepburn's like an icon out of this but it's like a not an important film whatsoever like it doesn't have like long lasting repercussions other than it's a good film and people still like it to this day um yeah. It's really surrounded around her and her becoming an icon. And then there's always that question of like, what is like the, the, the main question that coming out of this is like pretty much everybody like hates the Rooney stuff. Um, nowadays, the, the big like debate about it is like, is she a step backwards? Is she like, you know, an every woman? Is she like, you know, a proto feminist, you know, like, I mean, like yeah. what, that's the big debate like nowadays and like analyzing the movie is like, what is that character? Holly go. Right. I mean, I think she's a reinventionist, you know, the character of Holly go lightly, um, MMA, whatever her name was originally, um, just, a really kind of like the, I don't know, the, the classic Hollywood tale of like the girl that like comes to Hollywood to make it and, not that she's in Hollywood, you know what I mean? Right, like she's sure. going somewhere mm -hmm. to escape this small town and she ends up getting like dragged down. It's kind of like almost a noirish um, character in that way, mm -hmm. uh, even though she's not really a femme fatale, although kind of, um, because there's some dark elements in it, especially with her like really implied like mental instability and. Yeah, let know. me ask you, that's one thing I want to ask you about here that I found really interesting, like watching it again all these years later, is the Buddy Epson character, her husband, that the marriage has been annulled, and um, he comes to kind of bring her home, and she right. and you find out she's been married to him, she was married to him at the age of 14. But I don't, because I haven't read the book, actually, so um, maybe you, can, if you remember, you can tell me, but it's like, is that character there and is that fairly accurate to the way like Capote wrote that subplot? Yeah, I think so. So it's more I, or less her that's the biggest departure. Right. Well he and imagined I, so Marilyn Monroe in that role, right? Like she's she's addicted to marijuana. Mm. Um she's basically like coming off of an addiction to, to marijuana and she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um she has like an illegitimate child. So the the Capote part really 
you know, doesn't imply, but like is very literal that she's like a prostitute, basically. Um, and where it's more implied in the movie. But yeah, he's, it's, I mean, I don't know. I think it was pretty common, especially in the South, in the, what would you say, like 50s, mm-hmm. that older men would marry like younger girls, especially because he had four children that he cared for and his wife had passed. Right. And that and that's the thing that I found interesting is that Capote doesn't take it easy on you as a reader, viewer in this case, with that character, because you automatically, you, the, the situation of her being 14 now, I think, like, you know, um, maybe less so than then. But now you hear that and it's like, oh, she got married off to this like older guy when she was 14 years old. And a lot of people like would be kind of like, you know, disgusted by the whole thing and everything. But it's like, he doesn't take it easy on you because like Buddy Epson's not a bad dude. No. Like he well, kind he, of he is. I mean kind, kind of he is, but kind of he isn't. And it's like that's what I'm saying. He doesn't take it easy necessarily on you as a viewer. Like there's things you have to wrestle with. Like you use a guy that was a sort of like a really well known actor from like twenty years prior as a whatever sidekick to Roy Rogers and mm-hmm. I mean, he's threatening to not support her brother when he comes home from Korea, I guess, is where the brother mm-hmm. is fighting in the war or whatever. Um, if she doesn't come back with him. And, right. I mean, he's, he's using a lot of, like, psychological trickery to really kind of force her to <clears throat> come back and live a life she doesn't want to live. So, right. I mean, it's a much darker movie than it appears with its, like, on its initial, like, sure. whatever, yeah. like glance. So, it's technicolor beauty and just the beauty of like the actors, the principals, you know, especially her and um, the part. But it's still a good movie. It's still an enjoyable watch. And that's why I sit there and argue in terms of context, why I think that is important is because of that Buddy Epson character, I think really is because like the idea there is there's a social contract. Right. That's that's being, that's supposed to be fulfilled. And the idea is like, she's still in the mindset of a social contract she's just trying to move up and it's breaking that cycle in some ways. And like I said, I get what you're saying <clears throat> completely with all that, but um, yeah. Um, all right. So let's go ahead and move on to number four. Hmm. Okay. So number four on your list is 1983 Scarface, directed by Brian De Palma, written by Oliver Stone. It stars Al Pacino, Stephen Bauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrotonio, um, and Robert Loggia. Um, it has an 82% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 93% from audiences. I think a lot of people probably at least know the basic premise of this movie, but if you want to go ahead and just walk through that and tell us why you have it on the list here. Uh, Pacino plays probably one of the most iconic characters of the past life. Um, and Tony Montana, a Cuban immigrant um, who was part of the, what is it called, like the Mariel boat lift or something, or whatever, where Castro sent all these people to the United States, but included like a thousand like recently released criminals, like political dissidents and criminals. Um, so rags to riches, like gangster story, basically where him and his um, group of people move from being like dishwashers up through the ranks of this drug organization um, to become like drug kingpins. And then his eventual downfall is precipitated by his own ego and pride 
and um, his inability to adhere to his own advice of never get high on your own supply. Um, some of the more, I think, so both you and I are pretty big fans of hip hop, you know, throughout like the, the decades. And um, this is maybe the most influential movie on modern hip on hip hop. Like ever, just in terms of um, lines of dialogue and names of characters, and just the ideas contained therein of raising yourself from from poverty to being like, you know, a wealthy, whatever, like businessman almost that's respected by legitimate businesses and in their own way, and is kind of able to like do what they want. And you really see Um, that, I guess, in the '90s, solidified more than anything from. Oh yeah. Um, more than anything else. I mean, not that there's still not references, but it's definitely in the 90s where that starts to become. Sure. I mean, there's rappers today that still use um, sure. yeah. words and phrases and characters from these movies as like their own monikers and in their, their music. Um, I mean, Nas specifically, like there's a few sure. few times in Omatic where this movie's referenced. Right. Ghetto Boys, I think, was the first time that I heard it. Mm-hmm. Maybe with, I mean, you know, one of the rappers in Ghetto Boys is Scarface. Scarface, right. Um, so, like you said, I think that most people know what Scarface is or have at least seen parts of it. Um, there's definitely scenes like my son, you know, who's 19, knew automatically, like, some lines and scenes from this movie. And we'll be like, oh, this is the movie where that comes from. And, um, specifically to say hello to my little friend, which is probably one of the most like repeated and parodied um, lines maybe in any movie ever. Like it's got to at least be in like the top five, sure. but, like, sure. people, like, you know, imitated or parodied or right. stolen or paid homage to. Yeah. I'm sure Danny um, Harvey's like probably like made like, you know, at least like, um, you know, a few thousand dollars off of probably like doing that. A few million probably. probably. Um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that, but yeah. <laughs> Really great performances, pretty much across the board. I don't think there's any real bad performances in it. Um, Pacino uh, being probably the well, Pacino being like the highlight. Yeah. But um, Pfeiffer's really good. Stephen Bauer's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, Master Antonio is really good. Yeah. Um, Loja is really good in it. Like yeah, Loja's um, good. Like in a like what fifteen minutes screen time, twenty minutes or something. Yeah, I think he's in a little more than that because it's. Well, yeah, you're right because it's about forty minutes into the movie where forty. Eh. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like he's in it more. Than, I don't. Know. Anyway. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's he's good. So that gets to the question: like, why is the movie problematic? Um. Oh, so there's a couple things that I don't necessarily like about this movie. Um. I I think that De Palma, for as good of a director as he can be, can also be a really bad director mm-hmm. and has some really bad instincts. And I feel like sometimes the movie feels really cheap, just in the way that he films it, the way that he sets scenes. I really don't like any of the scenes that are set in the like Coliseum-style nightclub that they go to. Mm-hmm. They all feel like television sets to me. Like there's no. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. You know what it feels like? It feels like a slightly better version of you know the um Dave Chappelle skits like with um Rick James and stuff like that, where it's just yeah, right. <laughs> it feels like a slightly better version of that, but it has the same feel to it. Yeah. 
Um, the soundtrack is really bad, considering the time period that it's in. Like, I don't know if maybe they didn't have money for like licensing rights for songs, but for being a movie that's really like kind of like it's super violent and it's got like a really like strong I don't know word I would use like heartbeat to it. Like it's very like like a, a very pounding movie in terms of it's like moving the action forward. Mm-hmm. Like it's got a really weak score and soundtrack to it in my opinion yeah. <clears throat> the problematic part of it is um, hold on a second that's really interesting that those are your problems with it because like my problems are actually the pacing of the movie it felt like it's a movie and this is going to sound so weird considering what it's two hours and 15 20 minutes or something like that two thirty maybe three hours long buddy is it a, yeah it felt like it could be longer um like there, yeah Right. It, it, the pacing of it, it's like it feels like they're jumping around way too much and like just jumping ahead in the future too quickly at well, times. So that's another problem, I think. And I think that's a combination of Stone's script and De Palma's direction. Mm-hmm. Because it almost starts out like a like a true crime biopic in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, where like here's a line, like a bunch of text about what's going on, and then here's text about the area that you're you know what i mean like it it feels like yeah fuck, i think like those um those like 50s and 60s cop shows where they used to do that right um but then it completely becomes narrative i i agree that like maybe there should have been a little more it felt here's after. the here's here's where at the downfall it just jumps to the downfall right well that's the thing is you need to see more of that ascent from yes. him murdering right. lopez Mm-hmm. to him losing it because that really is only about 25 30 minutes if of like that, that block no maybe it's longer than that but that's all that shit in new york but it's like it's like when his ascendance when he like rises up to the point where he's in the tub smoking a cigar feels like it's like it feels like nothing happened it maybe it maybe maybe it is longer but it feels like it's 15 minutes and nothing happens in between right um, you're right like uh, so, and it just narrowly it just fell off. It's just like, oh yeah, we just want to skip this part and get to the downfall. And I, I don't know. It, that was the my biggest complaint about watching it again for the first time in twenty years. Um, was was that? I agree with that. I think that um, for as great of a performance as um, Pfeiffer gives in the role, I think that her character could have been more agreed. Like there needs to be more of a reason you see from them getting married and being like happy to them like breaking up in a restaurant because yeah. calls her a strung out war. Sure. Or like, you know, I mean, maybe give her a little bit more motivation of why she's marrying him, even if it's not because they're so happy together. Like, you know, if, if she feels like this is a social status thing, like she like, you know, needs to kind of like move on to him now. Like there, there's not a lot of exploration of her motivation. Um, at all and it feels like again that could have been if they would have added a half hour that could have at least been eight or nine minutes of it you know and it just yeah so that that's the biggest like flaw to me i just want to say before you get into the other part of this which is why we're doing this podcast this is the movie that i was referencing about blue on the quick cage when we were talking earlier this week is that there's a lot of pastel colors um in this like a lot of like pastel blues and like you know stuff like that and I thought it really set the atmosphere really well, the cinematographer, by like having all these blues with the neon and the gaudiness of like other colors in it. 
Um, and I thought that that like did I, that was one of like the best things I thought about this movie. Where really was like you know um, was the co- like, coloring and cinematography and stuff like that. Like rewatching it, right, it looks good sometimes. Yeah, but sometimes I mean, you're I, right. It looks like shit. Like sometimes, uh, yeah. I Mansion stuff always, I think looks good. But. I think it's always De Palma's like pitfall. Really, is that he he just feels like a jumped up like TV movie director. Yeah, and sometimes he has good instincts, and sometimes he has the worst instincts. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes his cuts are too abrupt. Sometimes yeah. frames things really weird. Mm-hmm. He lingers too long sometimes on scenes that like should just be short. And then, Great. like you said, like he plows through things sometimes that mm-hmm. you could like build a little more. Um, I don't yeah. know. Like I'm always torn on the palm. Like some of the right. stuff I like a lot, and some sure. abysmal. But you know, whatever. Yeah. Someday, um, someday we're, good, someday like, we're so going to do a top five to Palma uh, just so we can talk about the Palma. Yeah, I don't know what's on it. <laughs> Definitely not raising cane. <laughs> that's, always um, that's always my go-to with him too. It's fucking raising cane. I fucking that movie's so bad. Um, so problematic. Blow it, um, blow it. Oh, blow! It's a fantastic movie. I want to talk about blow it on a different list. You can get me off. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's the depiction of um, Cuban-American immigrants, and I understand that there was, like, a very large, like, drug problem in the late 70s, early 80s in Miami, but um, just the depiction of everyone except for, um, so everyone that's an immigrant in this movie is in some way connected with illegal activities, and most of them are basically morally vacant, Mm -hmm. um, like, despicable people. Um, I mean, they try to give some moral code to uh, Montana, uh, which is really what leads to his downfall, which also feels kind of forced and rushed. Um, but he's willing to do pretty much anything, you know, in order to be successful. Um, it's also the fact that the majority of people that are playing Hispanic characters in this movie are non-Hispanic, and most of them are white. Um, the only exception being... Um, the guy that plays Manny is actually like a Cuban American actor, um, Steve Bauer. Mm-hmm. But everyone else, you know, Pacino, white, like right. Italian American actor, um, Master Antonio. Master Antonio is a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Logia is a white man. Like all of these mm-hmm. are, and I understand that, like. Montana's become, you know, like an icon, but still, like, it's it's a little problematic, just the combination of the depiction plus the, you know, um, what do they call it? Brown face. Brown face, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, and I said this to you. And I I mean, even as good as it is, it is a caricature to some degree, what Pacino's doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and it, and it it is a, you know, yeah, it, 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 like the the way he's enunciating, it's iconic, absolutely, you know, and it's created this fascinating character, but he's just taking this, you know, ostentatious Cuban um, accent and like going overboard, just like he does in most movies, like going overboard and over the top with some, you know, things, um, and and so, so, so it is problematic in some ways, as good as the performance I think overall is, given that character um, that he's created. But 
And you, you, you do see a lot of um, a lot of things in his later movies that he pulls from the character of Tony Montana. Sure. Um, I think in his character in Heat, um, I think his character in Son of a Woman. Um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, like, you yeah. know. Um, when it, do, you, do you remember that line in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross when he's like, you know, have you ever took a massive dump and he make? Do you know, do you remember the face that he makes when he hikes up like his pants a little bit and like makes a face? It's a Tony Mon. It's a Tony Montana face. Yeah. Um. But so one of the things I said to you like via text because I watched this movie between last night and this morning. Um. I think that because I've heard so much of the dialogue of this movie and like had this movie referenced so much. That it's kind of lost its impact watching it now. Mm. Like, it almost feels like a parody of itself. Right. Like, completely different than how I felt seeing it when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 when I saw this movie for the first time. Um, yeah, it just feels like parody. You know, like, I know so, so, so much of, like, this movie's dialogue just being in, like, the world is yours and all I have mm-hmm. is my work, my balls, and, like, there's so many things that are like iconic lines from this movie. Um, not to even mention the like we like I said earlier, the sale out of my little friend. Like there's so many things that just like when you see him now, it's just like all right, yeah, that, that's that's cool. Like I like I get it. And I don't know that I really like gangster movies that much anymore, maybe. Like just in general. Yeah, I've definitely like you know how I am. It's like I've definitely tuned out of the Italian gangster shit. Like I can't do that shit anymore. Um but um, yeah. I don't know. I've, I actually, I think I enjoy it much like, more than you. This this movie, like watching it again. But I haven't seen it since I was like fifteen. I think this is the first time I've seen it since then. And so it was I. I guess it was just maybe if I didn't enjoy it more, I was more interesting to me to go back and watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it maybe a couple times since my initial view. Mm. Um, and definitely one of those things like where. Like, people were so in love with it in maybe the late 90s, I would say. Yes. Like, people talked about this movie so much and how it was, like, their favorite movie, and I don't know. But it still is, it's it's really made by the performances and the script. Like, both of those things are really strong. Right. And it kind of lets you, like, overlook some of the other stuff. But again, just honestly not as offensive, I don't know, as, like, the... Um, Japanese character from Japanese, but still, you know, uncomfortable it's, in that respect. And today would have been played by, you know, an entirely Hispanic yes. cast would, would be playing right. the character in this movie. You know, they almost remade this movie uh, like twice, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's a video game series. Um, right. The World is Yours, and I can't remember what the other one is called. Oh, it's... um money, power, respect, or something like that, mm-hmm. um, that are, like, whatever, alternate histories where he survives after the mansion shootout mm. at the end of the movie, and it's, like, him rebuilding his empire. Mm. Um, but it's really, like, one of the most, like, culturally significant in terms of, like, pop culture, very specifically, like, hip-hop pop culture um, yeah. movies of, you know, the past, like, half a half a century i would say yeah yeah i mean i i I get the brown face stuff it's absolutely real they you know 
if it was today, you're right, they would cast, you know, Cuban-Americans, at least Hispanics, uh, you know, to actually play the roles of, of Cuban-Americans that actually know the language and maybe understand the culture a bit more. Um, but um, the thing that really bothered me watching it this time, I think it's because we're so the, the, the tactics that were being used in the early 80s by the Reagan administration and are being used again now um, in the past, like, five or six years um, by Republicans of demonizing um, Hispanics that are looking to come to America as, like, a largely criminal population. I mean, the same thing was done during this, and this almost... I don't think it was meant to be. Maybe it was. I don't know. But it, it felt like prop, I, knowing Stone's politics, I have a feeling that it right. wasn't. Um, but it's like it feels like propaganda, like watching it now um, for that time period. and Or at least like even if it wasn't intended, it played into the fears of that time period. And I, oh, think, yeah, I'm, I think so. And I'm so close. We're so close to like the same thing happening when we're hearing about caravans and you know like you know criminal records of immigrant like illegal immigrants that um it just rubbed me the wrong way like that aspect of it um don't you think too that like they felt like they were almost humanizing montana too much and that's why his last like the whatever the climax and like leading into like the end they do so much to make him just kind of despicable like yeah. everything from the fallout at the restaurant through, um, you know, his like the implied incest, like mm-hmm. sexual feelings towards his sister mm-hmm. and then murdering his best friend and just mm-hmm. all these things where he's, you know, like burying his face in a mountain of cocaine. Sure. Um, well, I, I mean, don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, I you could just see it as them making him complex. I mean, uh, because like he, he does have some sort of moral nature to him and the idea that he won't kill the wife and child of the person they're trying to assassinate and in fact like basically like ruins his relationship with the connection in order to um in order to save a a woman and child so i but yeah it's like i i think that yeah i i see it as a complex character but yeah I, i think that they did feel that they were probably making him the idea of like an anti-hero and tried to go overboard and right yeah but yeah no so it's um and like I, so so let, let, let me say this and then we can finish yeah i think they do a really good job of building his moral complexity up to a certain point and then i think they make him a caricature just to finish the movie yes like maybe the, the whole ending that like you're rushing right. and it's I don't know. It's it, like so. This movie was like really poorly received by a lot of people too. Like when it came out, mm-hmm. um, as just like a like unimportant bloodbath. Like basically a jumped up like B movie. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I I think I can. I still see the importance of this movie, and I still. I think what I said to you is like I would get sucked into this movie in like twenty to twenty-five minute increments, where I would be like so into what was happening, and then right. something would happen directorially or dialogue-wise, or just 
the way they would like cut from one plot point to another and it would completely push me out of my immersion in the movie and I would just want it to be over with. So, sure. Yeah. I did enjoy Breakfast Tiffany's more than this movie, for the record. Right. If you want to count, like, how many movies I enjoyed Breakfast Tiffany's more than. So. Oh, shit. I skipped a movie. You did, but it's fine. We'll just do it at number three. <laughs> Is, see, behind the scenes, we had to stop because Frank needed a bathroom break. <laughs> and it made me, like, lose focus on... <clears throat> like the next movie also i only had three lines devoted to criticism on that movie um so it kind of like snuck itself in um i'm drinking a lot of water i'm drinking a lot of whiskey so it's fine um between the two we screwed up the order um so number three oh we also got razor ramon out of Scarface, which to me is important. Right, stay all over the bad guy. Yes. Um, so number three on your list, which was previously number four, is 1968's The Party, also directed by Blake Edwards. It stars Peter Sellers, Gavin McLeod, and Marge Champion. Has an 82% from critics and an 88% from audiences. This is probably, I would think this is the movie people are at least familiar with. You want to tell them a little bit about the movie and um, why it's on this list? You know what's funny about you, like, going right to Scarface is while we were talking about Breakfast Tiffany's, I said, you know, Blake Edwards directed this and the number four movie. So yes. people probably think I'm an idiot, like, because they're like, fucking Scarface. <laughs> like the, whatever. Right. Seven people that will ever hear that. And, um, hey. Party is a 68 movie directed by Blake Edwards, um, starring his... Um, longtime collaborative partner uh, Peter Sellers as uh, Burundi V. Bakshi. Um, Sellers plays in Brownface, an Indian um, actor, uh, immigrant to Hollywood, um, who was brought over to play. I guess they're doing sort of a like a Gunga Din esque um, British imperialism like action movie. Um, Bakshi is a klutz and um, an overactor and basically destroys the set by accident um, and then becomes persona non grata, um, threatened to be banned from Hollywood forever, but through a mix-up gets invited to, instead of being on a list of like basically blacklisted actors, goes on a list of like invitees to this exclusive Hollywood party with this really prominent producer. And then it's just a series of vignettes after that of him misunderstanding things or having some calamitous event happen with like slapstick, um, some really kind of gross like poop jokes that happen and like toilet humor. Um, Sellers plays Bakshi with a certain amount of affection. Like it's not really a mockery of Indian people but it's definitely a negative portrayal of Indian people in some ways as being like simple and culturally and, you know, socially unaware in a lot of ways. Um, I still thought this movie was really funny at points. Uh, this is a movie I saw when I was really young and I thought it was hilarious when I was a kid. Um, for as much as like we've talked about how I'm not a huge fan of comedy movies, there's something about really good slapstick and like situational humor that can really get to me. And like makes me laugh really hard. Um, despite how like disgusting it is, they basically have sellers 
like insulting an entire continent of people with his um, brown face portrayal. I still like Sellers' performance in it. Like, I think it's mm-hmm. very human and endearing, um, which makes it even more difficult to kind of like wrap your head around, like, how did they think this was a good idea? Um, I think the movie's beautiful to look at. I think Edwards, in the same way he does in Breakfast at Tiffany's, has a pretty masterful command of color in terms of like set composition and just the way that he films what in essence is like almost like a sitcom-esque setup in this in a single house like a single location more or less for the movie um for the majority of the movie where they're just in this house um but for being a movie about the way that people of color were treated like a comical look at the way the people of color were treated in hollywood at the time um which is i think what edward um like Edward's criticism is here, like light, gentle criticism. There's really no people of color in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of black actors um, that play servant roles, like in the house of the producer, and they don't really have speaking parts. And then um, I guess probably a Japanese actor who plays a chef that doesn't really have any kind of significant role. Um, and everyone else is white in the movie. So, yeah. But I, I think some really funny set pieces, um, even though there's not overly much of a narrative to the movie, uh, I think the sellers um, really just fantastic like physical actor and just the way that he carries himself and the way that they film scenes and frame scenes. It's very much, very much similar to, you know, Clouseau in the Pink Panther movies. Sure. And, not the first time Sellers have played in Indian either, because I think, I don't know, maybe called like the Millionaires or something like that. It's from like the early 60s. Um, he also plays an Indian uh, man, like a doctor, I think, or something, maybe. Um, but obvious, 100% obvious from like even seeing like the cover of this movie that it's a completely inappropriate and offensive portrayal of, you know, a white person playing someone of another race. So. Yeah, I think it would have been impossible for me to watch it in if it i didn't see that sellers had affection for this character and was not trying to do it in any kind of way that he thought like hurt the character right. um like you said it's a stereotype and it's a negative stereotype but um he he really loves that character a lot i think and um, and the movie loves the character, I think. I mean, like, you know, it, it puts him in the end in a... I mean, he's obviously the protagonist of it, and that does not negate any of that whatsoever, like, of the, of the, of the you know, how gross it is. But, um, but, it, but it at least made me be able to watch it. Um, I just thought the set pieces... It lives and dies because they're all vignettes. It lives and dies on the number of vignettes that are funny. And I just, like, the balance to me was just skewed. Um, yeah. Where it's like some, a lot of the vignettes I didn't find funny and some of them I found funny. It's really interesting to me because, again, like, I find... I find that comedy... There, there's just certain things that I find funny. And, like, like the one... So there's a, a, a bunch of recurring jokes in this movie. And one of them in particular is... um. Um, Bakshi refuses to drink alcohol for the majority of the movie until he basically finally gives up and is like, fine, like, I'll have some wine. Um, but there's a waiter that keeps trying to bring him his drinks. Mm-hmm. And every time that 
um, Bakshi turns the drink down, the waiter drinks the drink. Until like midway through like dinner, the waiter is completely drunk and is then like destroying the house and like causing all this like havoc, but continues to get drunk like during the end. It's like those scenes are really funny to me. Yeah, and see, like my mine tends to skew more towards like the the awkward or the like just really uncomfortable, like cringy type stuff. So, like, uh, what is it, Birdie Num Num? Like, right. like that that scene, like I thought was really funny because it's just so uncomfortable to watch. It, yeah, um, really, like, yeah, the the um, shit, I don't know the name of the actor, um. Clutterbuck, um, the guy that that owns the house, the producer, right. um, just his like absolute like deadpan, mm-hmm. like stone faced looks because he doesn't want to have this party anyway. But there's this man like destroying his house and making these mistakes, and he's just kind of like watching it happen, almost in like detached. Like to me, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, and I again, like I think that sellers genuinely was trying to portray a character just because he loved the character and not for any nefarious reasons to try and like you know mock or hurt sure but unfortunately this has long-term repercussions right like i think specifically probably this role um in terms of a very certain portrayal of indians um in american culture not only Um, that but um Specifically, I mean, Apu, I would say, is it's very similar to the Apu like accent and stuff like that in The Simpsons. Well, I mean, I think that uh, what's his name, um, Hank Azaria. Hank Azaria, yeah, has said that like this is the influence to. Oh, Apu. has him? Yeah, I never heard that. Um, it also was. I mean, Sellers was hugely influential on a bunch of like actors, like specifically uh, um, Rowan Atkinson for Mr. Bean and mm-hmm. um. I read some other article like about like his lasting influence because remember that HBO did that thing. I think it was HBO. Yeah, it was HBO that did that. Yeah, it was. I can't remember. Something was coming out around that time, but like, or I can't remember what it was. But yeah, they did a doc, like a kind of like a um, a biopic on him. Yeah. But there also were like I think some Indian like directors and actors that kind of like like the character and sort of were inspired by him hmm. i think the one real like downfall for sellers is that uh set of ray um uh, pather bachali director had interest in working with sellers and completely cut off any um communication and avenues like with you know his whatever his agent like after this movie came out so um but it's hard like sellers is still like a really really great actor and I think maybe kind of underrated just because like he's always playing a caricature like you're never getting Peter Sellers um and I think that in his mind he was just that's just another character that he's playing it's just you know a director that he trusted and liked and a role that he thought was funny and you know that he could like do justice to and it's just unfortunate yeah so but really difficult I think if you have any kind of like modern sensitivity to watch this. Absolutely. Yeah. Almost feel like complicit in some kind of like, you know, racism. 
yeah like i said i had to justify it to myself you know like um and i don't think my justification is inaccurate it's just that it was still justification like in terms right. of watching like um all right so uh, you know what i don't feel bad about moving i, I I'm, I'm officially moving this to three no matter okay. what because you like this movie better than you like scarface just from listening to you talk about it. <laughs> i think scarface is a more important movie which is sure. why scarface was number three um but oh yeah like despite like any misgivings i have watching this movie i still remember laughing my ass off at this movie mm-hmm. when I was a kid so yeah i own this movie on friggin like vhs i think i got it at uh, saturday not saturday matinee saturday matinee whatever that place in the mall was called that became fya saturday matinee yeah sorry about that yeah i probably paid like 35 dollars for the vhs or something is there know? something else that had matinee in the title no, it's just Saturday night. Yeah. Saturday night. How much did you spend? Like $40 on it or something? Oh, like 35 probably. <laughs> I probably bought this in like, I don't know, some horror movie and like it had $60 come out of my Do you remember mind. how fantastic, and I'll move on to number two, but do you remember how fantastic it was when Best Buy like finally opened and Saturday Matinee couldn't overcharge you for fucking movies anymore? Yeah. Because like that shit was do always I? so expensive in Saturday Matinee. Like I'm sure like... I can't imagine what laser discs laser discs were. Oh, oh. I can't imagine laser, laser discs either. <laughs> um, laser discs were eighty or ninety dollars, and sometimes more than that. I remember we went to Tower Records in uh, Philly, mm-hmm. and I bought I bought like two Asian horror movies and spent like a hundred dollars on VHS, and I think Chuck bought Tron, maybe? And that shit was like 120 bucks. Right? It was crazy. They, I'll, they, I'll tell you one story about Saturday Night Night. Is you remember those like really cheap wrestling VHS you get? Like, you know, things like, you know, oh, the, like, the hidden matches of X-Wrestler, and it was uh, old stuff from like the territory days that got right. compiled. Um those things would usually be like what, like five or six dollars. Maybe you find them somewhere. Like yeah, you know, they you weren't very. Them at Woolworth in the five dollar bin. Right. Of- yeah, they were charging twenty dollars for those things. Oh, like, for like wrestling pay per views, they were charging like thirty five dollars for a VHS or forty dollars for like a SummerSlam or a WrestleMania or something like that. It was absurd, absurd. Yeah. I mean, they were the same with DVDs too, though. Sure. Like when DVDs yeah. were, that was another thing that Best Buy. And eventually Walmart, like, really just mm-hmm. kind of destroyed those niche stores like um, Saturday Matinee and FYE and mm-hmm. really kind of led to their downfall is um, just the general fact that, like, you could go into Best Buy and get a DVD for 15 bucks. Sure. Whereas, yeah. like, and same with CDs and cassette tapes. Sure. Those were still a thing. I mean. And I think Amazon probably played a big role in that but online, too, for the people who had access to it. Like, they probably, right. like, a lot of those stores probably started competing with Amazon, and then it's just all over the price. Well, Amazon destroyed Best Buy. Sure. Oh, well, sure. Sure. Well, because it's more I convenient. Mean, it's, it's places convenient like Target and Walmart still survive because of, like, the overall convenience of everything in one place and the yes. fact that they can offer discounts that maybe. Well, Amazon can offer discounts on anything, but you know it's like a, a convenience. But sure, um, yeah, like I don't know, man. I I remember paying like I bought my first DVD was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I think I spent I think it was thirty dollars if it was anything, right? And I cannot imagine spending thirty dollars on a DVD today. 
Yeah, you, no, right? I, I probably no, you would. Yeah, it I depends would. on the movie. But yeah. Right. I sit here looking at like my collection of like three hundred plus criterions. I think because I've been so focused on like this is a list I've ignored how influential or important a lot of these movies are. Um, number yeah, two, all, huh? all of them. It, it, the party in a subtle way, you know, in certain like avenues. But yeah, I think they're all pretty influential. Yeah. So number two on your list is 1978's Grease, directed by Randall Kleisner. It stars John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Stocker Channing, Jeff Conaway. I'm only throwing Jeff Conaway on there because I grew up watching the Bold and Beautiful with my grandmother, and he was the original um, thorn on that show. So, um, as a 75% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% from audiences, I think everybody knows Grease, but you want to give a short right. synopsis. And <clears throat> so, full disclosure, this is the nostalgia pick, like more than any other of this. Um, this list, uh, Grease, is one of my favorite movies from my childhood. Um, I mean, it's really just kind of a soft retelling of any, like, star-crossed lover story, except right. they're not necessarily star-crossed and they end up together in the end. Um, but it's got elements of Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. It's got elements, you know, I mean, obviously, like, pulls a lot from West Side Story, especially with the you know, the gang element, like, not, you know, real gangs, but, like, mm. these, like, greaser gangs, the Pink Ladies, the T-Birds, the Scorpions, right. I think is the name of the mm -hmm. evil gang. Um, minus a couple songs, one of my favorite, like, soundtracks um, from any musical ever. Um, I think there's at least, like, four or five songs that are immediately recognizable, and, you know, most people that you meet, like, around, like, our age range will be able to sing along. And even like younger people too, because Greece, I think, because of our parents and then our generation, and then the fact that it's been, you know, um, they did the Fox or whatever did that special where they did the live performance. Um, I think it's pretty much stayed in like the um, like cultural whatever. It stayed within like the pop culture radar for the better part of now sure. 40, forty plus years. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know. Again, like, I love Greece. The only reason that it's even made the list is because I don't know how else we ever talk about Greece. Um, it's got a few things that are, like, mildly progressive in the way that it views, like, body autonomy with women, and um, especially, like, women making decisions for themselves, and it's still got some uncomfortable language in terms of... Uh, Hispanics and homosexuals, um, some slurs that are used and some stereotypes that are kind of like perpetrated like with, with cha-cha and the implication that, you know, if you're not like a manly guy, like building a car and greasing back your hair, that you're a homosexual. Um, if you're not a woman that's willing to have sex, that you're somehow like lesser. But there's also some good examinations of, you know, like inner sensitivity especially with Rizzo um I don't know it's just it's it's a really fun movie like I again like I love the music in it um I just think that there are some elements of it especially because it sort of is a a parody of 50s American culture through a lens of like 70s American culture which still wasn't that progressive right 
um, that you do find some things where it's like, eh, and things that they changed when they like done versions of this um, musical for like the stage and on television mm-hmm. in years. Yeah, that was my big takeaway that night that we were texting about it was that I think what it is is that it's actually really progressive in a lot of ways for its time period, except for the fact that there was still a lot of like just like inherent sexism in people in the late 70s. And I mean, they were only looking back 10 years when they wrote this initially. Um, And, you know, it's hard to progress a lot in that time period and not just have subtle biases and those kind of things. So, I mean, I think looking at it, what, 40 years later, obviously, you know, right, we're going to see, you know, you know, a lot of things that other people didn't. But I actually think that Stocker Channing character is actually really progressive for the time period in the way that, like, she's represented um, overall. Um, The things that a character like that would have had to deal with and... Progressive to a point. Because okay. in the, the time end, period? well, sure, but at the end, even though she's kind of like a loose woman that does what she wants, the thing that I'd never do, or whatever that song is called, where she's like, she still is this sensitive, whatever, traditionalist at heart that just wants to be loved and wants to be with Kaniki and can't let her see, can't can't let him see her cry, and I don't. But I don't really mind any of that stuff. Like, there's nothing when you watch Grease where you think, like, ugh. Like, this is... And there's also the implication that um, the game show hosts or the um, American Bandstand-esque um, show hosts tried to roofie um, Marty, right. the pink lady. She's like, oh, he tried to put two aspirins in my drink, so I slugged him and left or whatever. Right. Um, what you told me is actually based on some... Yes, the, the, the original American Bandstand, yeah, I did research because I thought it was weird that they didn't focus on it very much. And I did research and... Oh, I sh- wasn't expecting this necessarily to come up. Um, and the original host of it out of Philadelphia was... Um, later convicted of being involved in some sort of child sex ring. Um, like, where that they were, like, basically doing a casting couch type thing. And uh, so I'm assuming people of the time period would have uh, known about that and understood the um, reference, probably, which right. is why they didn't spend a lot of time focusing or condemning necessarily the character that much when it did feel odd watching it out of context, like that there's not a condemnation of that character for doing that. Um, so it's like if you, I guess, if you knew the time period and kind of knew the history, then that would, um, you know, be, um, I mean, it still is one of the highest grossing live action musicals of all time, so Sure. That speaks volumes for it. Yeah. So. I mean while you it, maybe said the lack of American interest in like live action musicals, but Yeah. But I um I mean despite like you saying that there's problems, like there's still a lot of people that still like to this day have problems with Greece. Um, in terms of like the way women are represented, especially the you know the living in John character in this. Yeah, inter- sure. That even though like John Travolta, so that's that's the funny thing is that 
that, that, that's a really good point. So Sandy completely changes her entire, her hair, her dress, her demeanor, the way she walks, the way she talks, in order to be the woman that he deserves. And he puts on a Letterman sweater from, like, his 10 minutes running track and can immediately, like, just take off the sweater and still be, you know, Danny Zuko again. Um, but, I mean, I think there's some, there's at least some equality to the men and women in this this movie where everyone that falls in love with each other is equal in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, like, like, I mean, my point of the whole thing is like, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying, but like he does attempt to change first and like you can, I don't know. I think maybe you're minimizing like a little bit to me, like the change that he tries to make. I mean, he goes through a couple different sports of like trying to like um, do those things, but, um, and, and to me, the most important thing is the, what's the last song? I, I don't know Greece as well as you do. Like, so I don't so. know this shit. Um, we go together like Hold on, what is it? Yeah, keep going, keep going. Like shibab, shibab, chang, 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 I don't think that's the song I'm thinking of. What's the other song at the end? The one where it's like just two of them. I got chills, them all. Yes, Red Pie and right, yeah, yeah, that one that's a play on the radio. Better shape up. Right. That's the key, right? Is like, is like he's like you know, he agrees. By the end, I better shape up. Um, right. And it's like that to me, like that's the key of the whole thing is that this idea of where he starts at, which I laughed out loud at the beginning, like when they're on the beach at that scene. And like he tries and to kiss love, her. Love, love is a many, many splendored thing playing in the background. Yeah. And like she's yeah. like, you know, what are you doing? You're going to ruin. And he's like, no, I'm going to make it better. <laughs> this will make it better if I kiss you. Like he's trying to fuck her. And it's like, no, I'll, this will make it better. <laughs> right. Um, I laughed out loud. Um, like the only time in the movie oh. I laughed out loud because um, it's just so absurd. But um, to me, it got at the heart a lot of times of like, I, I thought it was a funny scene just in general. Like it's it gets to the heart of like kind of like the stereotypical views of male and female relationships. Like, sure. you know, uh she's looking at the romance of it and he's like looking to get laid. And um so I laughed out loud at that. But by the end, the idea is he agrees with her, I better shape up. Um so I, I do see it as a guy who has accepted the idea that he needs to change in some ways in order to be a better person in order to be in this relationship. And so, I mean, I think he tries to change first. She realizes because of all that, that like maybe there's something she's assuming she's in the right all the time. She realizes she needs to change some. Um, Now her becoming his, you know, leather clad sex goddess. Yet definitely could be like problematic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Could is, is definitely of the times when it was written still problematic according to today's view but it's like i i still see it if i'm trying to put context behind it and i do think it's important to put context behind things like i i think at the time period even if it's uncomfortable now it was rather progressive um there's also a lot of references in this movie and this, this is also i was thinking about this when i was watching it and it, it like, people aren't going to get, you know, 
a lot of the references in the Sandra D song. Mm-hmm. Um, like, who knows who Troy Donahue is? Like, right. you know, right. or who... I mean, when I was a kid watching this with my mom, because that's how I was introduced to it, is my mother and I watched this a lot together. Um, she could explain things like the Ipana toothpaste and, like, all that stuff. Sure. You know, there's a lot of references that, like, were able to be explained that, like, you just wouldn't get anymore. Right. Like, Annette Funicello, people aren't going to really know Doris Day, Rock Hudson. You know, I mean, maybe, like, there's some... Do you know if the original play is again? I don't know shit about Greece, like really, like because um, I'm I'm not a big fan. But I mean, um, but is Frankie Avalon is whoever was was that scene in the original stage play? Do you know, or was that something uh, that was done for the movie? Do you have any idea? And if you don't know, it's fine. I believe that that's in the original. So was it just like some actor playing Frankie Avalon, I guess, like in the original stage play probably? Yeah, just he's just the teen angel or whatever. Right, because they don't reference it necessarily, right, in the movie, not that I remember, is like you just know it's Frankie Avalon when you see him, right? Well, you know it's Frankie Avalon. I'm but saying, what, right. right. So, so I'm assuming if it was, the idea is it was Frankie Avalon in the original stage play, they would have had to have referenced it in some way, but because they actually got Frankie Avalon to do this, that you don't need to have a reference to it. It's just like, you know, if you're of that time period, who that is, yeah, um, which exactly. I thought was, again, was the other thing actually that made me laugh in the movie is like the Frankie Avalon stuff. Was, it made me laugh a little bit. Um, a new customer would come to you <laughs> unless she was a hooker. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, not that I lived during that time period, but I have just enough context to know, like, I mean, I saw that being an upending of the image right. of Frankie Avalon, like, by doing I that. saw enough stuff with. Beach Blanket Bingo and Gidget and, like, sure. all that stuff to know who those people were. And right. had very clear frames of reference to all that stuff. Right. Well, and Elvis and Rock Hudson and Doris Day. Like, I knew those people when I was a kid, you sure. know? Sure. Well, as Xers, we had to know boomer culture in order to sure. swim in it. I mean, like, you know, it's, you couldn't escape it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But I, overall, Brandy and I watched it um, together, and um, I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I've just never been as big of a Grease fan as um, you or her. So um, she doesn't find it problematic at all. It's, it was a stretch. I just wanted to talk about Grease, and we're never going to be able to talk about Grease any other way. So this is my way to talk about it. <laughs> we could have found ways to talk about Grease, but okay. I don't um, feel like working it in somewhere. Might as well get You know what? And you're like sacrificing enough for the next list. So. <laughs> All right. So number one on your list, which you say is the movie that started this whole thing, is yes. 1971's Dirty Harry. Directed by Don Siegel, it stars Clint Eastwood, Andrew Robinson, Harry Gardino, and John Mitchell. It is an 89% from critics on Around Tomatoes and 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it's number one on this list? Um, so, basically a fictionalized kind of look at the Zodiac killings. Um, 
follows Harry Callahan, nicknamed Dirty Harry, because of the tactics he takes with uh, criminals, um, who's trying to investigate and catch this sniper who's murdering people in San Francisco. Um, again, like modeled after the Zodiac killings and this guy's called the Scorpio killer or whatever. Um, one of Eastwood's kind of iconic roles is sort of let him transition from the star of Westerns, like spaghetti Westerns into like a more mainstream uh, movie star. Um, probably maybe his most iconic role just in terms of like recognizability sure. and um, what it led to like later in his career and dialogue definitely very formative in terms of like his own like real world politics I think and like movies that he would make later just in its um, social attitudes and views on crime and criminal justice um, uh, Callahan is a gruff, unfriendly um, asshole, kind of, but with a really strong moral compass and a really uh, focused set of principles in terms of, like, this is how the world needs to work, and this is how you treat criminals. Um, some more of the brown face casting in the sense that um, uh, I guess maybe he's Hispanic, right? The guy that plays his partner, um, Kiko or whatever. Uh, let me look real quick. Uh, early life. Uh, yeah, he's a Spanish descent. Oh, he's 82 years. Oh, he died at 82 years old. Yeah. He just died recently. He just died August. Yeah, August 1st. Um, COVID? No. Okay, cancer. Well, who knows? Right. So, really well-filmed movie. Um, Very taut. Um, Eastwood's performance is fantastic. Again, like, probably his most recognizable role and maybe I think the role that's probably most responsible for him becoming, like, a major movie star during the 70s and 80s. Um, Filled with some really iconic lines, specifically the... Um, often misquoted, uh, do you feel lucky punk mm-hmm. line? Um, are you counting the bullets? Did I fire five shots or six? Do you know, mm-hmm. well. And then kind of a satisfying resolution in terms of him, like, taking the criminal out and then just sort of, like, throwing away his badge because he can't live in a world where, like, police are held to some sort of like legal standard, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's one of the, that, to me, that's the biggest problem with the movie. Um, and there's some really like typical like 70s crime stuff in terms of denigration of homosexuals and minorities. Um, mm-hmm. Both Hispanics and blacks are portrayed as people that are kind of like considered lesser by the San Francisco Police Department. Um, but really, it's the idea that. Dirty Harry, you know, Harry Callahan feels like any extreme is fine if you're taking down a criminal and that there's no need to pay attention to someone's legal rights as long as you're in the right and you're pretty sure that they're a bad guy. Right. And it's, you know, it it causes, it causes the case against the Scorpio killer to get thrown out. 
um, midway through the movie. Um, and that's played where the lawyer throwing the district attorney that's throwing the case out is kind of portrayed as the bad guy and this like soft-minded sucker for like wanting to follow constitutional law. Yeah. Um, pansy, really that's, pansy liberal. Yeah. Right. That's that's the thing is like it's very much almost like insidious propaganda, like kind of trying to get you to root for the guy that's, I mean, he's an anti-hero, you know, like, and he's breaking the law. Eastwood and propaganda, come on. Right. You're right, what am I thinking? Um, but again, I think this influenced the way that Eastwood, like, kind of approached movies, and I think he's made a very successful career sort of building on similar characters that, you know, adhere to this almost, like, mythical, like, cowboy superhero ideal that you know justice prevails over um messy details like legal whatever repercussions in the law and And this is what we grew up with like this is this creates the 1980s which is all the crime movies that we grew up with crime action genre this creates that whole mentality i mean this is your basis for um Riggs and Murtaugh. Um, sure. John McClane. John McClane, 100%. Um, pretty much every... Uh, Nick Nolte in 48 sure. Hours. Sure. Uh, like, there's so many... Yeah. Right. Living on the edge police detectives who mm-hmm. are willing to take the law into their own hands to get things done right. Like, what did I... I just watched something recently that... Like, I couldn't believe how... Liz, I can't remember what it was. It's a movie that I loved, and like as a kid, and I watched it. And I remember thinking, like, man, like, how did I find these guys to be like the heroes? But you know, it's the way that it's portrayed, and like, because you have the fourth wall breaking ability as the viewer to like see all the action, like you know, Scorpio is the bad guy, and like he's just getting what he deserves. And even though Eastwood's breaking the law, like he's doing it to save this girl's life and to you know take this bad guy down well right well it stacks the deck is what it does i mean obviously like this guy's a complete fucking psychopath um it's fascinating this guy's first role is this like um you know because i guess what what is this famous movie hellraiser is probably his most famous movie andrew robinson you think like that he's a big character in yeah yeah I mean, his most famous role was Garrick on Deep Space Nine. Like, it's one of the best villains it of all time. It ain't famous to me, buddy. Right, yeah. Um, to lots of people, it's 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 very famous. But um, uh, but it's under makeup. But uh, he and and I've seen enough of Deep Space Nine because my wife is obsessed with Star Trek. Like that. Um, he is fantastic. Um, in that role. But um, but yeah, they stacked a the deck because this guy's just a complete fucking maniac um so that's where it goes in that area you're talking about a propaganda in a lot of ways i think of like stacking the deck and the argument of police should be able to do what they need to to take these people down because obviously somebody like this how many people are going to sit there and say like oh no that's wrong um right. well, yeah because they get you so wrapped up and the thing is is like and it's a solid crime movie. Like, I mean, like... Uh, right. Yeah. The, the screenplay itself 
gives you some moral ambiguity there and firmly places the blame for Scorpio getting away on Callahan's shoulders. Like, Dirty Harry is responsible for that man, like, being free and murdering other people. Mm -hmm. But Eastwood's performance is so strong in the way that Siegel directs it, they almost don't even let you, like, get the idea that Callahan did anything wrong. Like, they just kind of make it where you are on their side. Like, yeah, like, you pansy liberal, like, why are you letting... Why are you trying to impose these laws on Harry Callahan who's just trying to do the right thing? Well, you know who wrote this before it got, like, you know, like, changed and adapted to different things, right? Um, John Milius? Yes. Oh, is that true? Yes. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Then. Um, so, yeah, it was John Milius. And, um, oh, and Terrence Malick, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Yeah, I, so it's like, so this dude just put out Jewel, right? Like, in the past year or so, like, Eastwood is a director. Yes. Um, And, like, I, I remember us seeing it in the theater, I think we saw a trailer for it, and it was like, oh, like, you know, that looks good and everything, and I, I can't remember how long it took us to get around to talking about, like, this, like, I, I think we had the conversation already, but it's like, why is he making Jewel? And it's like, you know... Um, and this is something that was very, like, I remember being, what, 16, I think, when that happened. That was the 96 Olympics. And it's like the idea, I remember this very clearly, the idea is like, oh, Richard Jewell was the guy who did it. And then it's like, you know, you find out like a year later, like, oh, yeah, they actually found that he didn't do it. And it was something you didn't hear about. And this is all, the only reason you make that movie now in 2020 is to propagate the idea of fake news oh right 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 that the media is not only is the media duplicitous and willing to sacrifice an innocent man for their own gain but people that represent law enforcement mm -hmm. are also just as insidious and willing to play along in order to get conviction even if they don't have the evidence right which, very, which, which when he probably started one in production on that was 2017 when everybody hated the FBI um, because they were complicit in, you know, activities involving their Oval Office. But now, in 2019, the idea that law enforcement is wrong, like, I wonder if... <laughs> I wonder if he started production on it in 2019, 2020, whether that would change or not. But that's the thing with the way that Jewel is framed is that I'm talking about the way the movie is framed, not sure. like being framed for a crime, Richard Jewell being framed for a crime. Um, the way it's framed is that there are people that work in law enforcement that are good mm -hmm. and just want to do the right thing, but these people, these tie-wearing desk mm -hmm. jockeys are just looking for a conviction, right? and they're using anything in their power. It, it's very much the educated like management of law enforcement are the evil people sure. and they're in league with the evil media. It's, it's all fucking right. The, 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 Mueller, the Mueller's of the world. That's what it is. The Mueller's of the world. I mean, right. that's, that's right. Um, so the thing we haven't talked about it with this is like the thing that you're not talking about that you're not saying like out of all this and you're just like talking around it 
is the idea that, you know, this is extremely uncomfortable right now watching this movie is because, you know, not that it hasn't been happening since we were children, but that like now we have a national movement in the past like five years of Black Lives Matter that, you know, is a large part about police killings and police doing what they feel they need to do uh, at times in order to get the bad guy or get the criminal. Um, and that's one of the things that makes the, the large part of what makes this movie so uncomfortable to watch is that mentality, this, you know, display itself in 90 minutes. I wasn't really trying to talk around it. I just didn't necessarily want to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that the reason why our parents' generation reacts the way they do, and maybe even people in our generation and younger, is because we were raised to think that it's okay for those things to happen sometimes. That it's okay for the cops to take the law into their own hands, to apprehend a criminal. And I've had plenty of people who I consider otherwise rational, normal, like conscientious like humans to say things like, well, if they weren't committing a crime, it wouldn't have happened. And then sure. you have to say, like, well, no, maybe they were committing a crime, but they deserve to die for that crime. Like, it's not about right. whether right. they were committing a crime. It's that does anyone have the right to be an executioner just because right. someone? And that's basically the inherent, like, premise of Dirty Harry is that he's mm. judge, jury, and executioner. And this is parodied and not even parodied, maybe in, like, lauded in like comics in the 1980s with specifically people like characters like Judge Dredd. I don't know if you're like super familiar with Judge Dredd. Mm -hmm. But that idea that, you know, there are these magistrate generals or whatever the fuck Judge Dredd is called that have the ability to murder people based on like their determination whether they're guilty or not. And that's, you know, I mean, it's based on like a fascist like future right. society, but that's kind of like what the premise of Dirty Harry and the subsequent movies is, is that his moral righteousness allows him to be able to decide whether someone can live or die. I mean, it's that thing like, you know, he stops the guy, the bank robber in the beginning mm -hmm. and almost murders the guy. Sure. Like at least puts the guy in a really dangerous situation just because right. He wants to prove a point or he's just going to arrest them and he's using that trickery to get him. But I mean, it's not right. like the actions of a good person. It's the right. actions of a creep and a borderline criminal himself. But then, you know, our parents watched that movie and were so enamored with, and I could identify with Dirty Harry. Mm -hmm. Like anybody who's lived in a city with crime is going to be like, yeah, like I, that's what we need is a guy like that. But you're just like sacrificing your constitutional rights at that point by agreeing with it. So right. it's maybe the most insidious kind of like propaganda in that sense. But it's a goddamn good movie too. So I don't. Yeah. No. I and and I mean I don't know if anybody that like didn't grow up kind of in that time period or in, that the, with the movies and were inspired, you know, by this movie. Sure. I don't know if people like after us would look at it and sit there and say like you know that's a damn good movie or and, and not have the problematic aspect to outweigh it 
but I mean, yeah, watching it like again for the first time in so long, like, yeah, it was an enjoyable movie. But at the same time, like, I also understand that, like, it was a relic of a time period, just like I'm sure well, that's the reason you have a number one on your list here. Um, right. But, but yeah, I mean, like, um, so yeah, it's like this weird cognitive dissonance where you and I, because of the time period we grew up in, can sit here and watch this movie and enjoy it and say it's a good movie. And then at the same time, like, understand that it is um, indicative of, like, the worst aspects of, you know, human nature. The only reason I can enjoy movies like this, like The Party, I think, specifically, because I think those are the two most problematic movies, like, in total. Mm-hmm. on the list are because as a human like I've grown past it so to me it is like looking at a relic of another time and even if not everyone in our society has moved past like those I don't know like prejudices or stereotypes or feelings or whatever like at least I am so I can still judge something based on its artistic merit which is weird that I can't do that with Woody Allen all the time you know, like, I don't know that I could watch, like, Manhattan or Annie Hall or Anna and Her Sisters or whatever today. Like, movies that I used to love. Like, absolutely love. I don't know that I could watch those movies today and not feel, like, kind of creepy about them. Right. It's hard enough watching Radio Days, to be honest with you. And right. I really love that movie. But I think it's because he's not in it for me to have to see him. So, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I did like Dirty Harry, though. I will say that. I mean, like, watching it again. Um, right, it still holds up. It still is, like, in my opinion, like, one of the most, one of the preeminent, like, action crime films of, like, a 20-plus year period. Last thing I'll ask you to do, rate, uh, rank, the, uh, rank the Dirty Harry movies. I think Dirty Harry, obviously, number one. Uh-huh. I think Sudden Impact is number two. Okay. Magnum Force is three. I don't remember The Enforcer. I don't either. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I don't, I, I've never seen it. The Deadpool is good. It's fine. I like them all just fine, I guess. But, I mean, Dirty Harry is by far the best. And then I think Sudden Impact is the second best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the enforcer. I wonder what the premise of that is. The guy that played um, Scorpio was in a sudden impact, maybe or Magnum Force, playing a different character completely. It has to do with a terrorist. Um... The People's Revolutionary Strike Force plans to use the unit workers' uniforms and a van as part of an ambitious series of crimes that'll make them rich. So it's some sort of like terror. Oh God, I just saw the words "black militant group." Um, ugh, okay, all right, yeah, I need to stop reading this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever seen that one. The Enforcer. Um, no. Deadpool was something I grew up on, though, because I think, what was that, 88 or something like that? Yep, 88. Um, 
yeah, that was one that was always on Cinemax or HBO or something like that, and I've seen it way too many times in my life. But um, so I have a soft spot for it. But yeah, I think you're right. I didn't. I I remember when I was a kid, I did not like Magnum Force at all. Really, like I didn't think it was a very good movie. Like in general. No, that's me. Um, Um, I think that he's also like in terms of influence. Dirty Harry is like the prototype for the one-liner uttering. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. What's what's that line from the killer? Like, give a guy, give a guy a gun and he's got a Superman. Give a man who he's got. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fucking dirty Harry is go ahead and make my day. Opinions sure. are assholes. Everybody's got one. I mean, sure. Like, yep. Fucking like. Yeah. I don't know. It's just. I, this awful fucking generation of people. I, I shouldn't say that. Like, I'm. I'm like, <laughs> it's fine. Right. Right. How much do you, you think it's, you. It's fuck. It's. 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 It's goddamn Billy Joel. It's his fault. You blame a lot of things on Billy Joel. You know why? Because I just I think of all these like dudes in the mid eighties sitting there listening to Uptown you may Girl? be right, I may be crazy. Mm. And nobody's listening to Uptown Girl. Um you never respect Uptown Girl, yeah. Okay, okay. Because I think Uptown Girl is a nice throwback to like Frankie Valley and Buddy Holly and stuff like that. Like it's not, it's not the creepy. Like even though I have a good job and a family and I'm like financially stable, I'm having this midlife crisis in the 1980s because of some existential ennui. Because I'm just a boring fucking piece of shit that needs to go buy a motorcycle and a leather jacket to feel like my balls. Still- so it's the 80s Billy Joel though. Work like fuck you, you know, like and it's, that's, it's that's, only that's 80s Billy Joel, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, okay. that, 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 it's really just you may be right, I may be crazy, <laughs> right? Because, like, I mean, Billy 70s Billy Joel has like tons of good stuff, like, um, yeah, 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 it's fine. What's that song also about, um, moving out, too? There's another one, like that that's song, 77, yeah, it doesn't matter. Moving out might as well be the soundtrack. To you're every you're right because that's also the same album that um only the good die young yeah is on. So that is really the beginning. Um, like you complain about white people movies, mm-hmm. Billy Billy Joel is the soundtrack to white people movies. Like sure. just whiny, sure. morose, neurotic, sure. fucking ennui, barren shit. Like just fucking get over yourself. Well, yeah, but I'm complaining about white people movies in 2000. This guy was doing this shit in like 1977. So right, it's like, you understand? It's like, we didn't start the fire, is the most boomer fucking bullshit that I've ever heard in my entire life. And my dad used to listen to it constantly because he bought the single. And we just listened to it over and over. The cassette single or the 45 single? The, the cassette single. <laughs> um, 45 single. 
it's eighty nine. Like it would it would probably be a little bit late for the forty five, but I'm sure they still printed it. But it's like Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But Kmart Kmart had the fucking rack of forty five singles until like ninety two or something. Right. I don't know. I talked about New York State of Mind at a at a conference one time. Um I've taught I've taught New York State of Mind um in in class before. Um, back when I was I, I think young and had um, hope like that I could do those kind of things. But. I think him and Rod Stewart are the two artists with the most talent and success that I hate the most. Billy Billy Joel and Rod Stewart. I hate Rod Stewart more than anybody with his fucking grandma, like saucy pervert grandma hair and everything. But I think Billy Joel is pretty close. My cousin's husband used to do... Um, construction work for Rod Stewart and down in Jupiter, Florida. And um, apparently he's a really nice guy. Was he just a gigolo? <laughs> Do you remember what the only Rod Stewart song I like is? No. Which one is it? It's uh, Young Turks. Oh, yes. That's the only one? Oh, yeah. There is no other Rod Stewart song that I have any interest See, in. See, my mom loved Rod Stewart growing up, because so there's actually songs that like I have nostalgia. As much as I don't have nostalgia, I have it, nostalgia for My My mom and I my like Maggie Ma- I like Maggie Mae. Maggie Mae is no, a good song. Fuck, it, Chris Berman ruined that song for me. Uh, I can't hear Maggie right. Mae without thinking about that. Yeah, I, get, I, 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 hear, I, hear, I hear you. Or is it the time we go back to school? Rumbling, stumbling. She shut the fuck up. See? That has aged well. Uh, okay. So there's a good Rod Stewart song. Shut up. All right. So it's called Young Turks. This is devolved. Um, the Heat won. I don't know if you saw, but um, yeah. get to face the Lakers and get destroyed. Yeah. Who? Kn- hey, who knows? No, it, it's probably gonna. They're gonna get destroyed, probably. But I. It, who would have thought the Heat would be in the finals? I mean, right. I mean, I think that's really cool, and I think it that it's, it's. I I think that it's some kind of like weird anti-karmic justice that LeBron James is going to rip the heart out of Miami twice. Right. Maybe. I, it, it's it's a good story. Like you know. Sure. I mean, it if is. I was if I was a more cynical person, uh, more conspiracy theorist, you know, I'd have different opinions. But it's a good story. I mean, I think that it's going to be interesting to um, to see what the reactions after this to LeBron James are from people that hate LeBron James. So this, like, is, if the man wins right. his fourth title here, you know, I don't know how you. With his fourth title with his third team, I don't know how you can argue against him being like at least one of like the two or three greatest players ever. Sure, and honestly, this COVID season and probably I'm assuming a shortened season next season will actually keep him away from a couple records possibly. Um, but yeah, but it also might let him stay healthy enough to play till he's a couple 40, years 40, past. Well, right till he's forty two. Um, he's still like without taking time off for 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 (coughs) baseball. Yeah, right, right, right. Cough, cough. Baseball. The the man closed out a series at thirty five years old with a triple double against the team. Like that's 
At 35, that, that's insane. Yeah. I don't know anyone. I'm sure that no one listening to this podcast gives any two shits about basketball. So you, 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 you never know. You never know. True. And it's not just seven. So <laughs> don't. I don't know why I always go to seven. No, no, you do always go to seven. I mean, um, look, we, we, we all contain multitudes. So right. My last question for it. Do you know how much okay. you spend? Um, how much do you think you spend a year in um, uh, streaming services? Like, how much do you spend a month? Did you ever figure that out? It's around. Do you count my cable or my um, internet connection as? Let's part not of my count cost? that. Let's just count the the services themselves. Uh, it's about sixty five dollars, roughly. Okay, so sixty five dollars. So ten months. So. It's about, so, so about $750? Right? Yeah, maybe a little more than that. Because there's things that like I'll pick up for a couple months and then drop. Right. So $750 you spend. Okay, all right. I'm also rolling Prime in with that. And I, you know, use Prime for a lot more than just streaming, but streaming movies. But that's like, you know, one of the services. Gotcha. I seriously have cut a lot out. There was no, like, no, five, like five channels on Prime that, I realized I was never watching, so I just deleted them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just asking. I mean, it's... Why you put my business on Front Street, huh? Hmm? People. I mean, like, you know, this... and, you know, I'm just saying $750 is, um, you know, not, um, you know, not, not a lot at the end of the day. That's all. Now, when you think about how much money people spend on cable. Sure. sure. And those people still are getting Netflix and Hulu and Prime and Right. And I'm not paying for cable at all. So, wow! Right. <laughs> I just threw two middle fingers up. I uh, I just watched the, Frank at the Zoom. Two middle fingers. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the pacao was the sound that went along with like. Uh, the other funny thing too is whenever we say goodbye, I always throw up the deuces, like the beast sign, um, which no one can ever see and no one knows is happening. Yeah. So it is. Only I see it. And, I laugh and then every we talk for like a half hour at least after the Zoom calls, after the right. podcast is over. So I'm not even like saying goodbye to Chris or anything. I'm just like, right, even giving you saying out there. goodbye to all, all seven of you that are listening to this. Yes, <laughs> more than seven four. <laughs> all right, so Fine. that's the last twenty minutes we went off the rails on this one, but um, but yeah, those were all very. Like I said, they're all important movies in one way or another, and um, I've been thinking about this list for six weeks now, so I'm honestly glad for it to be over, um, so I can like stop like kind of half thinking about these movies um, overall, but um, I'm glad to have watched all of them again, and um, I'm glad to have been able to talk about them. So. Yeah, it was an enjoyable list to watch, I think. Yeah. Next so, week is amazing, and I'm next, excited. Next week, I am. I'm just going to sit here silently most of the next week. That's all that's going to happen. That's what. That's what's going to happen. I'm gonna push you into it. Nah, I'm just going to just sit here and just, just take it in. Just you know, take it in, man. <laughs> Drink it in. Drink it in, man. See how it goes. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Have a good night. He threw up the deuces. Yeah, deuces. <laughs>